Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. So good to be with you today. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors, and I want to welcome you, whether it's here in a worship center, over in the Ridge, joining us now live. Uh, thankful for all of you being here. And uh, we're going to go on our time of teaching. So if you're brand new, you may not know this, but inside of our program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. And so if you want to take that out, um, we're going to get started. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here to be pursuing you together in the next stage of our journey. And we just pray your Holy Spirit would come in this amazing way. I pray for our thoughts that are clear. I pray, Lord, that we would gather around your word and that you'd speak in a very profound way to each one of us in a way that truly t shows us the next step to listening and following and gives us the grace and the courage to take that step that leads to our next step of transformation and impact for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story today starts in 1957. And uh, we're in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, any, any Oklahomans here? We got some Oklahomans here. Yes, okay, one person. That's awesome. Uh, I actually have some family roots in Oklahoma too. But anyway, we're in the, we're in the city of Tulsa in 1957. And there's a big uh, celebration going on in the whole state because this is the 50th year uh, anniversary of them becoming a state. And, uh, but the people in Tulsa are feeling a little bit slighted because all the attention is going to the capital city of Oklahoma City. And so they hire, they decide to hire a big PR firm from New York to uh, come out and help them garner some attention nationwide, internationally, on their incredible city of Tulsa. And so this, uh, this uh, PR firm comes out and they brainstorm and they come up with this idea and said, this is what we think you need to do you need to make um, like a time capsule. But it's not like a normal time capsule. This is like a huge time capsule. It needs to be made out of cement, impregnable, uh, like bomb-proof, uh, bomb nuclear bomb resistant. And uh, into this time capsule, you need to put a brand new 1957 Plymouth Belvedere with films, or with uh, fins. And fill it with memorabilia and then have a contest. And uh, the contest will be to guess the population of the state of Oklahoma in 50 more years in 2007. And, um, and then once you've taken all the votes, you drive this car into this impregnable cement vault and you bury it underground on the lawn of the Tulsa Courthouse. And he said, we think if you do this, this will garner national attention. <laughs> and so he said, we're in. So they buy the Belvedere, they get the engineers, they make the, uh, the, ma the huge uh, cement vault, and uh, the nation goes crazy. I mean, papers, newspapers all over the nation are picking up this story. In fact, Life Magazine, remember Life Magazine? Yeah, some of you are like, no. And it's like, okay, well, if you're old, you remember Live Magazine. And it was, uh, it was like a people magazine on steroids. Because in those days, there wasn't very, there was only two magazines in the entire world. One was Life and one was National Geographic. So uh, anyway, it was big. They, they picked up this story and they came in and took pictures of these three attractive girls sitting on the hood of the Belvedere in long skirts because that's what they wore then. And, uh, and so it got all this attention and the day came where they drove the car in and the crane picked up this huge impregnable cement block 
and they buried it three feet underground on the lawn of the Tulsa courthouse and settled in to wait for 50 years. Well, today... We are continuing our series called Unfiltered, the Audience of One. And for those of you who are brand new here, not only a welcome, but this is, I want to give you just a heads up on this series. This is a series about Jesus. And uh, the reason we call it Unfiltered is we, we talk that when, uh, when it comes to Jesus, that many of us, most of us, we probably tend to have um, many filters, think of like a camera, uh, like filters that have built up over our life uh, from our personal background maybe from a Sunday school class, maybe from a church, maybe from secular college classes about Jesus, maybe PBS specials or Discovery Channel specials about Jesus. Maybe it's uh, popular novels or films like Da Vinci Code. And these filters kind of obscure over time who Jesus is. And our goal in this series has been to go back in time, back to the very first century, one of the earliest documents describes the life and teaching of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew, and see if we can remove some of these filters and take, capture some new images of Jesus, some fresh, kind of untouched up pictures of who he is and what it means to follow him. So we've been doing that, and right now we're in the midst of the most famous message ever given in the history of the world. It's, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out his vision for his movement, what he calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, and he shares his vision of what it looks like to pursue God and become transformed, be the people we were created to be, like our Father in the heavens. And so right now, uh, today, we're going to pick it up in chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and we enter into a new section today, starting at verse 19. So if you have your Bibles, your apps, let's go ahead and pick it up, or open up and uh, turn those on. You'll notice here on your note sheet a section called The Audience of One, Jesus and Money. We pick it up at 619. And so it's a famous passage in 619, Jesus says, don't store up for yourself what? Treasures, treasures right. Don't store for yourself treasures on earth. Now he's talking about money, resources, finances, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So in other words, don't, uh, you know, don't uh, store up your treasures where your, so your valuables are vulnerable. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the heart of the, measure, measure, uh, the matter, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so what we see in the Bible is that God's concern is always for our heart. Uh, from the very beginning, you go back, uh, Jesus was asked a question once of all the laws in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, 613 of them, which of the laws is the most important? And you may remember this. He said the, the first law is most important is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said that you are to uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your heart, all your soul, and your strength. The second one, similar, love your neighbors yourself. He said and all the rest of the laws are just a footnote and explanation of what it looks like to love God and love people. And so Jesus says, most important thing, you love God with all your heart. And that's why this is an issue here. Jesus is going to be talking to us today about money, finance, and resource, but the deeper issue is our heart. Right? Um, so he says, the reason I'm talking to you about treasure is because whatever you invest in tends to capture your heart. 
So look what he says, verse 21 again. He says, um, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our heart follow our investments, our spending, our spending. What we invest in financially, our heart tends to attach. And so what we're going to see today is that one of the greatest competitors for our love, affection, devotion has always been, in the history of the human race, has always been money, resources, treasure. And that's why Jesus is talking about it today. Uh, the, the concern is, is that uh, we're going to see is that there's only, as human beings, a capacity for one top ultimate value in our life. And so there can be many other competitors, but one of the greatest ones is money. That's why topic's on the table. So Jesus uh, goes on. He's going to give us a couple illustrations of how this works. And the, the first illustration is a little harder to follow, but you get the gist. He's going to compare the eyes of our human body to a lamp entering a room. So if you go into a dark room, but you have a lamp, the lamp will bring light into the room, light it up. Uh, in the same way, our eyes allow light to come into our body in our life. And so if our eyes are healthy and they're letting in a lot of light, our whole life will be enlightened. If our eyes are bad, um, like we're going blind, then we, we will just have a little bit of light, we'll be uh, dark and we'll be living in the dark. And he says he's gonna apply this to money. So he says the eye, of the, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eyes are healthy, and in the, the, uh, the Greek, that word healthy sometimes has a connotation of generous, and that may be going on here. But if your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. They're gonna let in a lot of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, and in, con in, in the original, in, in Greek, it has, sometimes has a connotation of stingy or greedy. Uh, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So he seems to be saying that when it comes to our lives and what we focus on, if we're focused on the right things, we'll live enlightened lives. If we have the wrong values, we're focused on the wrong things, we'll be living in the dark. The next one is more clear. And he says, no one can serve two what? Now, okay, so in the Greek, it's talking about slaves. So we're not talking about employees. He's not saying that you can't work for Trader Joe's in the morning and Starbucks at night. You can most of the time, right? Uh, what he's talking about is, is, is uh, slaves. So in the ancient world, usually you'd only, uh, a, a, a slave would only have one owner. And of course, that's important because as a slave, you're on call 24-7. If you had multiple owners, you had two masters, then it would be very difficult because you'd have to choose between them who you're going to listen to. And that's Jesus' point. He said either he'll hate the one and love the other, which is sort of a Jewish way of saying prefer one over the other. Remember, unless you hate your father and mother, that kind of thing. Um, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But he says you cannot serve God and money. Uh, you, you cannot. So you, now you may think that you can. A lot of people think you can. But he says ultimately you can't. And so what we're going to see today is this is the bigger principle that Jesus is teaching. The illustration is money, but the point is if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to live in the kingdom, if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to live out God's epic vision for our life, there is only room for one God in our life. It's impossible to serve God and anything. 
The illustration today is money because money is one of the greatest competitive idols or gods of the human race because of all that money buys. You think of it, money, it's not just money. Money, you know, it, it provides possessions and power and position and popularity and pleasure and status and security. And so Jesus says that for the, in the human heart, there's only room for one ultimate value. We can't serve God and anything else. There has to be one ultimate, but the illustration today is money. Okay, so we're going we're to unpack that together. And so um, what I want to do today is in the time that we have, I want to highlight three important principles that Jesus is kind of laying out about, about kingdom and finances and our finances, and then come back at the end and ask two questions to take those principles and apply them to our life. And so the first, question, the first principle there in your note sheet, there's a section called the audience of one, kingdom finances. And the first thing that Jesus teaches, and he often teaches this uh, in his kind of his teaching on money, is that money is a test, right? That money is a test. And you say, well, it's a test of what? Well, money is a test of whether we're serious about following Jesus or not. So I want to take you back to a year ago. Now, I remember a lot of you weren't here a year ago. Um, but if you go back a year ago in July, it's when we kicked off this series on the Sermon on the Mount. So we've obviously uh, done several other series in between this year. But if you went back to a year ago, July, and we first entered this Sermon on the Mount, I set it up like this. In chapter 4, we see Jesus has launched, chapter 4 Matthew, Jesus has launched his ministry in the north of the country in the Galilee. His message is the long-promised kingdom of the heavens by the prophet is coming. God is on the move. You need to get ready. And then he's going around sharing that message, and he's uh, healing the sick, and uh, people are coming from all over. He's beginning to recruit his first followers. And so uh, in Matthew's gospel, he's been telling us Jesus is going all over teaching, but he hasn't told us what he's teaching other than the kingdom is near. And so in chapter 5, Matthew says, here's an example of the type of things Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is how the sermon starts there in your note sheet. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And if you were here then, I pointed out that as Jesus begins to teach this day, that there are two distinct groups in the audience. That one group is the crowd. Those people that have come to listen to Jesus, to learn more about the kingdom, uh, they've come to be healed or maybe catch, per, you know, kind of watch a healing or per, uh, observe a miracle. That's the crowd. And then there are his disciples. And these are the men and women like we met in chapter four, like Peter and James and John and Andrew who have left their nets and followed him. So they've stepped out of the crowd and into the kingdom. Are you with me? There's two different groups here. And I pointed this out that Jesus is directing his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to which group? Yeah, to the disciples. It says he taught them. He said that he sees the crowd, he calls his disciples, and he teaches them. So the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is not directed to the crowd, it's directed to people in the kingdom. Those people who have left the crowd follow Jesus, and they're uh, part of his kingdom. And the same way that it starts the sermon, we're going to see it next month in August, it's how it's going to end. 
we get to the final, uh, the final message of Jesus in chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be a very famous illustration about two men who went out to, buy, uh, to build a house. Each one went out to build a house. One was wise, one was foolish. And the mark of the wise person is that they listen to the teaching of Jesus and follow it. The mark of the foolish person is they listen to the teaching of Jesus, catch this, and they like the teaching of Jesus, but they don't follow it. And so Matthew is going to make a big deal of this. He's going to say that when they got done, everyone was amazed at his teaching, both the crowd and the kingdom. They were amazed. But the difference between the wise and the foolish the wise listen and follow, the foolish listen and like. And what Matthew is pointing out is that if they had Facebook in that day, everyone would have been gotten home and posting pictures on Facebook and Instagram, and everyone would have been checking the like box in Jesus' homepage. But Jesus says, the difference between the wise and the fool, one listen and like, one listen and follow, one is a fan, one's a follower. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus says that money is one of those areas where we find out whether we're listening and liking or listening and following. It's a test. Um, great example, Jesus will tell a short story early in his ministry. It's a famous story. Some of you will recognize it, but it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a farmer, and the farmer went out to plant his field. That's a very short, you know, small field in those days. And he's already overturned it, you know, like rototilled it. And so he's going to go out, and he's going to cast seed in his field. He's going to plant his field and cover it all up. And he said the, the, the seed falls on four different kinds of soil, and only one of the four, this is very important, only one of the four produces a harvest. Right? All the other three are going to die out. And so uh, anyway, his, later in the day, his disciples say, hey, could you explain that short story to us? We're not quite following. And he said, okay, so uh, in this story, I'm the farmer. Jesus is the farmer. The seed is the message of the kingdom, like the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and the four different kinds of soil are four different kinds of responses to my teaching. And he said, so one kind, so let's run through the four real quickly. Number one, first kind of response is people that listen and are not interested at all. Goes in one ear, out the other. Okay? End of story. On the other end of the spectrum, for person number four is the kind of person that listens and follows. And as a result, they embrace my teaching. Their life is transformed and they have huge impact. And so from the one seed, they, their, their life produces 30, 60, 100 fold. So those are the two extremes. He says, but in the middle are two kinds of people that listen and like and even start to follow. But somewhere along the way, they get derailed and stop following. So the question is, what derails them? Remember, God and, God and. So many times you think that God, that God is your God, but it's really God and, and the and will always trump God in the end. And so he tells this illustration to help us understand that. So he says, well, the first kind of person that gets derailed, they're kind of person, they start following me, they start following the kingdom, and they're really excited, they're growing like crazy. 
says, but when hard times or persecution comes, they stop following. So God and their and is safety. They're trying to, to serve God and safety. And that works fine until you're persecuted. But when you're persecuted, your real God, your top value is revealed as safety and so they stop following. So the second kind of person is a person that tries to serve God and money. So they listen and like, they start following, but along the way, their and emerges, and their and is money. And this will derail them. So this is his illustration. Here's how he puts it. He's going to compare this person to someone that has soil that receives the word of God, but also has thorns in the soil, seed, you know, the, uh, thorn seeds. And so as they both get water and begin to spring up, the thorn grows faster, chokes it out the, the grain, and it dies and doesn't produce grain. So he says, still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, they hear the word, but, uh, but the worries of this life, and in context, and he's talking about financial worries, like next week he'll say, and, and next week he'll say, don't worry about your life, what you put on, what you eat, what you drink. He says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. So what is the deceitfulness of wealth? Well, wealth makes promises it doesn't keep. Wealth uh, writes checks it can't cash. Wealth promises happiness. If I can achieve this, I will be happy but as all modern research has shown, that after a certain kind of bare minimal what we need in our life, there is no correlation between happiness and wealth. And so he, he goes, he says, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things, if I could just get this, if I could just get this and make this compromise, you know, whatever thing, is, um, they come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And so Jesus says, as you look at people listening to my message, You've got some people not interested at all right away. Some people really interested. They listen and follow and transform. But you've got these two middle kinds of people. They listen and like and even start to follow. But they have God and. And so eventually they stop following because their and is revealed. And so for some people that and is persecution. For others it's finances and this is what he means when he says you can't serve God and money because it may look like you can, but sooner or later push will come to shove and your and will assert itself as your true God. And so what we're going to see today is that money is a test. And Jesus says if you want to follow me in the kingdom, if you want to be part of my movement, if you want to be transformed, live the epic life you're called to live, if you want to become like your father in the heavens, there's only room for one God in your life. It can't be God and. And one of the greatest competitors, the biggest false gods of the human race, is money. So that's the topic on the table. So if we're going to follow Jesus, that we have to decide at some point in our life, do I own my stuff or does God own my stuff? So part of the basic understanding of when I come into the kingdom of God, I come under the authority of the king 
And the king, I belong to the king. Everything I own belongs to the king. So the mark of a Jesus follower is they look at like this, that I have this stuff, but how I make my money, how I spend my money, how I save my money, and how I give my money is all under the leadership of the king. And I own it with an open hand. And so as he leads me, I will give or I will invest or I will make or I will save, but it doesn't belong to me. Uh, I belong to him, therefore everything I have belongs to him. And my job is to manage my finances under his leadership. That's how a Jesus follower thinks. I'm under the authority of my king. A person who listens and likes thinks, I, I love this teaching, but my stuff belongs to me. And what I do with my stuff, how I make it, how I spend it, how I get, that's up to me for me to decide. So if we're going to follow Jesus, this is a fundamental crossroads that we have to go through. It's a, it's a huge spiritual test, and it's not an easy test because of all that money means to us, all it represents. So for example, later on today, or later on in Mark's gospel, Jesus, uh, there's an amazing account, there's another famous account of a young man. And he is a man who's pursued God his whole life. He's been very successful. He's made a lot of money, he's wealthy. Uh, he's risen to a place of high respect in the community. Uh, and yet recently in his life, he's beginning to have second thoughts and spiritual doubts about his relationship with God. And he's beginning to wonder, is he really as close and on the right track as he's always thought he has? And my hunch is, as the story unfolds, the reason he's having these questions is because he's been listening to the teaching of Jesus, perhaps even the teaching of John the Baptist. But he's beginning to have some real spiritual doubt and as we see as the story unfolds, this is really severe. This is not just a light thing for him. This is keeping him up at night. Because what happens is the story unfolds. He's in town and he gets the news that Jesus is leaving town, which suggests that he had, you know, he knew Jesus, suggests that he'd heard Jesus. And what even suggests it more is he panics. Remember, he's a highly respected guy. He's a leader in the community. But when he hears Jesus is leaving, he starts literally running through the town in his street clothes. So, I mean, think of this like a business guy today in his suit, like running through the town. And it's going to cause some attention. And, um, and in that culture, you know, people don't run like that. That's why the father of the prodigal running to his son is such a big deal. You, we never do. It's an undignified thing to do. And so... He's running through town, and then when he gets to Jesus, he finds Jesus, he falls on his knees. This is very dramatic. I don't want you to miss the emotion. This is a guy that's being tortured. This is a guy that's seen himself as a, a God pursuer his whole life. He's really taken his relationship with God seriously, and yet something he feels is off, and he's got to get to Jesus to, to get a word on this before he leaves. And so when he gets there, he asked Jesus this powerful question that we have to sort of reinterpret through uh, first century eyes, not 20th century, 21st century eyes. But he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we hear that question, we hear it through 21st century evangelicalism, and we hear it, it's like, what do I need to do to be saved? That's not what he's asking. He's a Jew. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. Jesus has been teaching about 
entering the kingdom of God. He wants to know, what do I need to do to be part of this kingdom that's coming? And Jesus does a spiritual inventory of his life. That's where we learn about his spiritual past. But then Jesus says to him, he says something to him, he doesn't say to anyone else on record. He may have said this, but we don't have it on record. He tells him, if, if you want to follow, if, if you want eternal life, uh, if you want to be transformed, you want to be perfect, here's what you need to do. You need to go back and liquidate all your assets. Now think about that. The guy is really wealthy. He's got to call his broker. You know, it's like, this is a big deal. Call the real estate agent. You know, liquidate all your assets and then give to the poor and come and follow me. And he said, and if you do that, you will have treasure in heaven, what we read earlier today. And this blows the young man away. It's not what he anticipated. It's not what he expected. And all this angst and all this emotion now is going to come up and he's going to feel like the price is too high. Like he couldn't wait to get you, but the price is too high. What was revealed in that moment is this is a perfect example of a church going, Bible reading person that has God and. And in that moment, his and is revealed. And what's really interesting is we're told that he's, he's sort of in a state of shock. It says he, he turned and he went away sorrowfully. He was sorry. He was really sad. And I want you to picture that scene. Picture the emotion that would drive someone to run through the streets, fall on your knees, the deflation that comes when the price tag is too high on the kingdom, and then the sadness of walking away. You can, you can see him in your mind's eye walking away, the disappointment, the stooped shoulders, the despair. But what's really interesting to me about that scene is that Mark tells us that when this young man first came up that Jesus loved him, which as far as I can remember, it's the only time in the Gospels we have it said just like that. You have Jesus' compassion on, but it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He had a strong affection. His heart went out to this young man and his, 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 his spiritual crisis seeking God. But what's so interesting to me is that in that moment, in spite of that love Jesus has for him, Jesus didn't go after him and offer to lower the price. He, he did not do kind of the used car thing. Like, oh, how about 48 months instead of 36 months? Right? That Jesus let him walk. And you say, why would Jesus do that? Jesus asked for so much. Why would Jesus just let him walk when he loved him? I think the reason is, is because Jesus saw this is a man who's soil number three. He is God and. And if Jesus lowered the price now, he would follow now like soil number three. But there would come a day when he would stop following because you can't serve God and. And so what we see today is that Jesus' is that money is a test of whether we're serious and who is God in our life and are we doing God and or are we really pursuing God. We'll come back to that later. Now, number two, the second and third principle will go faster. 
But the next thing Jesus teaches about finances in this passage is that one of the marks of the wise, remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's the wise man and the foolish man. But the, one of the marks of the wise is that the wise invest in their future. One of the marks of a wise person in any area of life is the ability to delay gratification. One of the marks of a wise person is they're able to say no to themselves today so they can say yes to themselves tomorrow. And so, for example, uh, college students. One of the marks of a wise college student is that they learn to say no to themselves at times for things to be fun because tomorrow is a test and I need to study. Um, One of the marks of a... Uh, a wise athlete is they're willing to work hard and train during the week for the game that's on the weekend. One of the marks of a wise business person is they know they should never cut corners in the short run because they want life to pay off in the long run. It's the mark of the wise. For example, there in Proverbs, Proverbs has a lot about this characteristic wisdom, but he who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son. He who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. One of the mark of the wise is they live today for the future. And of course, that's true in finances. It's true in all finances. One of the marks of a wise person is they spend less than they make. A mark of the wise, they save something for a rainy day. One of the mark of a wise, they invest now for something that will pay off a long time from now. It's just how a mark of a wise And Jesus picks up on this principle and he says, if you want to be wise in the area of finances, you need to take that one step further and you need to extend your time frame of your investment. He says, human beings, you you guys always think in terms of this life. He says, let me tell you, I've been to the next life. It's real, it's coming. And so if you're wise, you'll invest in this life for the next life. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons why this is wise. But one of the reasons Jesus points out here is that when you invest in this life, our investments are always vulnerable. You know, I just uh, was reading this week a book about uh, Enron and that whole thing, you know, but you have these, these poor people that have worked for Enron, their stock is going crazy. Uh, and, and all the executives at Enron are, are encouraging to put all their retirement into Enron stock because it's making so much money. And of course, in, in, when Enron blew up, they lost everything. That's a modern day example. But it can happen in a million ways, can it? It's like the stock market crashes, uh, a recession hits, you have a great job, and then all of a sudden, uh, your whole uh, industry gets uh, outsourced overseas. You study, you, you invest all this money in school, you, you get school loans and you get out and you can't get a job. It's like life is full of uncertainty uh, in the financial realm. And Jesus says, so one of the reasons why it makes so much sense to invest in the long term is because it's guaranteed to pay off. If you invest in the short term, He said, you build your treasures here, rust, vermin, thieves, it's vulnerable. You invest there, it is not vulnerable. It is a 100% bulletproof investment. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, is that this this, uh, 
this logic of Jesus is only as compelling as our vision of the future is. We'll come back to that in a second. But let's talk about this vulnerability issue. Um, today we started this story, today with the story of 1957, Oklahoma, this competition, guessing the population, the, 1950, the Plymouth Belvedere. It's an amazing story. This was like an international news story in 1957. And so they, they, they put the car in, they put it in this bomb-proof. I mean, it was, it's described as nuclear-proof, right? And they, they, they put it three feet underground, and then they wait. And so in 2007, they bring it up. 7,000 people in the stands. They've sold tickets. International news coverage. And when they open it up, they discover this impregnable cement vault is not as impregnable as they thought. If I remember right, 20 thousand gallons of mud and water were inside the car was completely destroyed barnacles rust rear end falling out like worthless the woman who won the won the prize burst into tears and jesus said to you i told you uh, uh, so Jesus says, if you're wise, you'll invest in the long term. But catch this, at one level, this sounds pie in the sky, doesn't it? It sounds like, oh yeah, that sounds like a church thing. You know, that, that sounds good at a church thing. So Jesus' logic is only as compelling as our vision of the future. And as followers of Jesus, frankly, often our vision of the future is sort of weak and anemic. I think for many of us, we, we still, we think of the future, we still, we think of heaven, we think of maybe some kind of ethereal uh, city with golden streets. Uh, we think of like fat little chubby guys with small little wings that shouldn't work and they're playing harps on a cloud, you know, or seeing disembodied spirits. It's like, that is a very uncompelling vision of the future, is it not? It's like, why would anyone want to go there? And you just have to assume we get there, we'll get a spiritual lobotomy so it'll all make us happy, right? It's like it's eternal worship service, never going to end. Yeah, um, yeah I'll struggle with an hour and a half. Um, so, uh, but remember, Jesus has been there. He's come from the future. He knows the future. And for Jesus, the future is more real, more physical, more solid, more tangible than anything in this life. You know, often uh, there are many things that I would love to do before I die on planet Earth. But deep inside, I have strong conviction that oh, that's cool, but it's planet Earth. Like where we're going, it's going to be a lot better. The mountains are going to be bigger. The waves will be cooler. I mean, it's just like, this is like, it's awesome. I mean, this is the best we've got, so let's make the most of it. But as we'll see in just a minute, the Apostle Paul will refer to the next life as life that is truly life. You know, C.S. Lewis, he called this life the Shadowlands. For Jesus, the next life is as certain as the dawn after the darkness. It is coming and it is so real. And to Jesus, you don't be foolish 
not to invest in the future. Now, number three. The third principle is that the mark of the wise, you say, well, they, they invest in the future. Well, how do you do that? How do you invest in the future? And Jesus says, well, the wise invest in the kingdom. So how do you, you, transfer, how do you transfer money from your earthly accounts to the next life accounts? And, you know, it's, it's one of the cool things about modern banking. It's so easy to do now, right? My, my daughters can send me, you know, they, I buy something for them. They send me, you know, they just transfer money from their account to my account. It's just a cool world. We live in that way. And, uh, in fact, if any of you want to transfer money to my account, feel, uh, just feel free. Um, I'll, uh, in the note sheet is my bank code. Um, but uh, it's just, you know, so we get that concept. You can transfer accounts. So how do you, so according to Jesus, how do you transfer money from uh, our earthly finances to our, our heavenly, uh, our next life uh, investments? And Jesus is actually very clear on it. In fact, in this discussion we had um, earlier with the, the young man and this rich young man and his discussion with Jesus, the, here's what Jesus literally said to him at the end. He said, go sell everything you have, liquidate, give to the what? The poor. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And you will have what? So in other words, when you give to the poor, when you give to kingdom priorities, when you give to advancing gospel, we see this throughout the Bible, that when you give to kingdom priorities, you are transferring funds from your account here to your next life account. They're going to pay off huge. Right? Interesting, the Apostle Paul builds on this concept in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command those who are rich in the present world. Now, some of you just checked out. Uh, you said, that doesn't involve me, so I can just take a nap for three minutes. But, uh, but remember that globally, according to global statistics, we often forget this as Americans, according to global statistics, if you make more than $35,000 a year, you make $35,000 or more, and if you don't, I'll talk to you in just a minute, but if you make more than $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's richest people. Right? And of course, if you say, well, I don't make that much, okay, so you're in the 90 percentile, whatever. You so, <laughs> so command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, which is what Jesus talked about, moths, vermin, thieves, but to put their hope in God, catch this, I love this, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that awesome? So today we saw one illustration where Jesus talked to a young man and said, liquidate everything. But as we go through the Bible, we go through the teaching of Jesus, that's not normally what he says. Remember, the issue is not our assets, the issue is our hearts. He's after our heart. And so he normally doesn't come to someone and say, sell everything. In that case, he did. Then what Paul says here, he says, to those of you who are rich, God has blessed you. He says, hey, this is a blessing from God. This wealth is a blessing. And he says, God's given it to you to, to enjoy, right? So he's not calling us all to be monks or something. He says, but look what you need to do. He says, but command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, be willing to share, and in this way, they will lay up, what? 
treasure for themselves, just like Jesus said, as a firm foundation for the coming age, just like Jesus said. He said, so that they may take hold of the life that is what? Truly life. And so the way we transfer uh, assets from our earthly accounts to the next life is that we invest them in kingdom priorities, gospel advancing, poor, meeting the needs of others, sharing, and so on like that, right? So, so three principles. First of all, money is a test. God's after our heart. This is what the issue is. You can't serve God and anything else, but topic on the table is money. It's one of the greatest competitors. So we, we need to settle that issue if we're going to move forward in the kingdom. Um, and then secondly, that the mark of a wise person who listens to Jesus is investing in the future, and then the way we do that is by investing in kingdom priorities. Now, this leads to two questions then as we apply this to our life. And so there in your note sheet, there's a section called the audience of one, two questions. And so the first question goes like this. Are you a fan or a follower? As you sit here today, you're sitting in church, um, in many ways, you would be like, uh, we would be like here, the, this uh, successful young man who loves God, who loves the word, right? You're coming to learn, you're coming to grow. But the question is, are you a fan or a follower? And what I want to point out is this is not so easy to tell, even for ourselves. That it's easy to deceive ourselves. For example, go back to the parable of the four soils. If you were to ask soil number two and three, whether they were fans or followers, what would they say? They would say followers. They received the word of the kingdom. They loved the word of the kingdom. They told their friends about the word of the kingdom. They started practicing the word of the kingdom. They saw themselves as followers. They weren't revealed as fans until their and emerged. And when safety emerged or finances emerged, they stopped following, and at that point, they would know the truth about themselves. And if you asked them at that point, are you a fan or a follower, they would say, I was a fan. But up to that point where it was tested, they would say they were a follower. And so it's not always as easy to discern this. And what Jesus is saying is one of the areas that helps us know whether we're a fan or a follower is in the area of finances. Another is persecution. When persecution comes to your life and you continue to follow Jesus, it's a good sign you're a real Jesus follower. And in the same way that finances are one of those areas. So here would be the question I have for you. When it comes to your finances, do you see yourself as a subject of the king and therefore everything you have and own belongs to him and you have a free hand, God, how I make it, how I spend it, how I save it, how I give it, it's under your leadership, and as you lead, I will follow. Is that your posture? Or is your posture more of this is mine? And I will spend it, save it, give it, invest as I please. And God, you're welcome to ask, and then I will let you know 
if you get your requisition fulfilled. Let me take it one step further, and I want to push you a little bit on this, and I think you know my heart that I'm not into guilt or shame. That's not it. What I am into is I don't want any of us getting before Jesus at the end of our lives, thinking we're a follower, and having him point out we were actually a fan because we did not do what he said. We will get there in a couple weeks. Jesus said, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not, dot, 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 dot. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you because you did not do the will of my follower. You thought you were a follower. You're really a fan. And I don't want any of us to be before the Lord and to think we're a follower and find out we were a fan. And so I want to ask you a tough question, not in any way, rub your nose or anything, but just to, to explore for yourself. I think this area of finances is one of those areas where we find out whether we're serious about following Jesus. So for example, if you ran a report from your checkbook or you ran a report from Quicken or you ran a report from TurboTax and you had a third party, so like a financial advisor you're meeting with for the very first time and they looked at your finances as a third party, would they be saying, wow, you really give a lot to this kingdom stuff. You know, you might want to think about scaling that back. Or would they say, oh, that's good. You gave a little bit to charity. It's good. We all have to do our part. It takes a village. Fan or follower. Uh, the second question is this question, who owns your heart? As we've seen today, this is the real issue. The issue is not money. The issue is heart. Money is like a thermometer of the soul. You stick it in your mouth, it tells you your temperature. It's a test. The issue, though, is not the thermometer. The issue is your health. The issue is your heart. The question is, who owns your heart? So today, when Jesus talked with that young man and told him to sell everything, that he discovered the truth about his heart. He thought God owned his heart. He discovered someone else owned his heart. Money owned his heart. The question is, who owns your heart? And here's the question I have for you. I think often we read this story about this young man that deep inside we kind of breathe a sigh of relief off. And I'm so glad that God, it was him and not me. And, and we're quick to say, but hey, but Jesus didn't ask that of everyone. And we, just, we want to put as much distance as we can between that young man and ourselves. But the reality is that story is there for a reason. And the reason is not that we would all sell everything and give to the poor and, and, and become a monk. Right? That's not the reason. The reason is, is because that story shows what it means to follow Jesus. It shows what it means to give him our heart. It reveals our heart. And so the question is, what would you have said if you were that young man on that day? Or what would you say today if Jesus came and said that to you? It's a tough question. But what would you say? Or let me just get it even more practical. What if Jesus came to you today, and he didn't say liquidate everything and give to the poor, but what if Jesus came to you today and he, and he said, I want you to leave the job you're in, this lucrative industry, 
and I want you to go use your, your gifts that you've accumulated in the secular marketplace to advance my kingdom over here, and it's going to demand you're going to half the salary, and it's going to require a different standard of living, but I need you to go and use what I've worked your whole life to have tremendous impact for my kingdom. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking going into ministry. I'm asking, what, what would you do? What would you do if God called you to move into an inner city community, not to run a ministry, but to be part of a ministry, to live incarnationally in that community, to help a young pastor who's starting a, a, a beautiful ministry there, just to be in the community, to be part of that church, to be salt and light, to bring healing but it will require you to change jobs, change standard of living. What would you do? You see, if we can't say, yes, I would do that, how do we call ourselves followers of Jesus? How do we say, I'm part of the kingdom of God? Do you understand by definition, if you're part of the kingdom of God, it means you've bowed your knee to the king? It's not the democracy of God. Right? It's the kingdom of God. And there is no kingdom without a king, and there is no kingdom without subjects. And so if we're not willing to come under his leadership and say, God, all I have, all I own is yours, I will, how I make it, how I spend it, how I give it, how I save it, how I invest it. It's all under your leadership. I come to you with open hand. As you lead, I will follow. And Jesus says, when you're there, you've gotten rid of the and in your life. There is no other and. I own your heart. And now that I own your heart, you and I can run into the future together. And we have some amazing adventures to you because you are no longer bowing down at the temple of another God. I own your heart and the way is clear for us to live out an epic vision of life transformation, tremendous impact, and long-term life that is truly life-changing power. Because... We have sacrificed the and, and there is no other God but one God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things for us as fallen human beings who are coming into your kingdom. It's, it's hard for us to trust you at this level. It's hard for us to turn from the deceitfulness of, of uh, riches and to really trust you with our lives. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace. We pray for your power. We pray for your empowering. We pray for your perspective and your insight and a change of heart. And God, we pray that you'd release your spirit in our midst in powerful ways that this place, the Church of Rocky Peak, would be a church that's completely submitted to you and completely dedicated to the kingdom of God and to the lordship of our King. For, for whom we have surrendered everything because you've given everything to us. And we pray now as we bring our tithes, our gifts, and our offerings, will you build a place 
where your name is honored, your kingdom is expanded, your kingdom comes and your will is done in Jesus' name. And we pray this together. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? I love that last line. Take this life and breathe on the heart that is now yours. You know, I don't know where you are today with this whole topic of finances. And what I encourage you is that if you find yourself in the place of maybe that rich young man of of wanting to follow Jesus, but this being a big, kind of a big barrier, or maybe it's some other barrier. Maybe it's not finances, it's something else. It's a relationship, it's a sin, it's a lifestyle, it's a career goal, it's something else. It's a family member, whatever it is. But you're in that kind of spot where you're running hard to catch up with Jesus but can't quite embrace what he's saying and you feel like your heart is not really his and you know it's not right and you're just not sure how to get there. Here's what I encourage you. I'd encourage you this week not to try to change your heart. That's sort of a fool's errand. Uh, Only God can change a heart. That's why in the prophet Jeremiah, God said that one day he'd write his law on our hearts. It's why the prophet Ezekiel, God said that I will take out your, st- your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Our job is not to change our hearts. Our job is to come into the presence of Jesus and to say, if you want to change my heart, I give you permission to change my heart. And if you're sincere and you're opening up your heart and you're willing, then God will do the work and you'll find that your heart becomes like his heart, that it will begin to beat with his passions. Then it will be a supernatural thing and it will lead to life, life that is truly life. So may this be a week where we all listen to Jesus. We don't just listen and like, we listen and follow. That we move from being fans to followers coming under his leadership and saying, Lord, here is my heart, breathe on it and make it like yours. Amen? Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.